Uh, am I good to go, uh, um, Wayne? Okay. Last week, here's what we said. We said Good Friday, or the day Jesus died, is like a womb called death that was broken open. That's what happened. We talked about it last week. If you uh, want to hear more about it, just pick up CD number 463E, or was it F? <laughs> okay, so just ask for it. So we said on Good Friday what happened was when Jesus died, what actually happened was this womb called death was that that has that has ravenously eaten up millions of people because there's no human being that is born that does not die. Everyone is born under the sentence of death because the Bible says that since we can't meet God's perfect standards because we decided to choose other pathways, it's impossible for one not to die. So everyone is born in the womb of death, or born out of a mother called death. And what is death? Death is the wages or the currency that you're paid in if you sin. And why are you paid in that currency? Because God is super holy to the point where nobody can approach him because he lives in unapproachable brilliance, not because he's got gases surrounding him that are inflamed or or, or flammable, but simply because just his purity is so ridiculous that there's a brilliance about him. And that God, because he's just and holy, sent his son Jesus to die for your sin and my sin. And so what he does when he dies is he breaks open the womb called death. And so out of that come stillborns like you and I. That's what we said last week. And then we said, not only does he break open the womb of death and releases that which has been trapped inside the womb. Remember, you're stillborn. I I, I gave this example. I said if if there's a mom and a, a pregnant mom caught in an accident rush her to the hospital, find out that she's dead, but in her womb is a baby and the baby is dead too. You operated, the baby is lying there. Both the mother and the baby are dead. That's the condition of our lives on Good Friday. But here's what happens on Easter or Resurrection Day. That stillborn is suddenly given life, where God now raises the dead. Just like Jesus was raised, so... You and I who've been delivered from death forever are now raised to life. That's what we talked about last time. And I think the miracle on resurrection is ridiculous. It's greater than sometimes what happened on crucifixion. Crucifixion, you died to death. But on resurrection, you rose to life. And we talked about the quality of life. Guys, pick up that CD. It's really worth listening. And so that's what we talked about last week. But here's the thing, guys. Go to... um, uh, uh, just see how it was symbolically illustrated um, in, um, in uh, Matthew 27.52. Matthew 27.52. Matthew 27.52. Here's what it says in Matthew 27. 51 onwards. And so it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Um, And what did that symbolize, guys? 
What did that symbolize? Sorry? Okay, so the, one of the things, the tearing of the curtain, and remember the curtain was pretty thick, eh? and it was pretty wide. It, 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 it um, tore not from the bottom, it tore from the top. So it wasn't a man who tore it, it was torn from the top. God tears that curtain that was in the temple. Why? Because you said? Yeah, so the curtain kept people from seeing the ark of God, which in those days was symbolic of the power of God. So the curtain tears, and so one of the things that it signifies is that finally people could go into the presence of God, like a child walks into his father's study. What else? What else does it symbolize? Um, you'll have to define it more. Freedom. Yeah, but freedom from what? Okay. May I suggest that one of the things that uh, symbolized is the end to temple worship. No more going to the temple and bowing down and uh, offering prayers. That was done. The old way of sacrifices and temple was done. That is another thing it signified. And now in 2752, here's what it says, starting from 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And this is on Good Friday, and, and rocks, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. The tombs also were opened. So Jesus is dying on the cross, and suddenly, outside of the city of Jerusalem, because people used to be buried outside the city, outside of the city of Jerusalem, suddenly tombs that held dead bodies broke open. And guys, that symbolizes exactly what we were talking about. Remember we talked about the womb being a womb of death that Jesus delivered us out of. And so that's what's happening in verse 52, where tombs that held the dead broke open. That happens on Good Friday. But listen to what happens next. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Meaning, dead people actually came out of the grave the day Jesus died. We'll talk about that later. But in the tomb opening, what's it symbolic of? What is it symbolic of? In the tomb's opening, not yet. Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that this represented, imagine you're outside, you're at the cemetery at Fraser and 41st on Good Friday, and the day Jesus dies, suddenly these Cemeteries start breaking open. I mean, that's what actually happened. And it symbolized the destruction of death. The destruction of death. That's what it symbolized, guys. I mean, just think, eh? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't stay dead. Death is a fraction of a second where your heart stops and you're immediately, immediately alive. You never die. Yes, your physical body stops, your heart stops beating, but your life continues. Where? In the presence of God. It's a micro fraction of a second where you leave this body behind. That's it. That's what death is about. Man, it's such a relief, eh? Because the Bible says that people live in the fear of death. The best way to deal with the fear of death is to pretend that we're going to party after this, or that we'll return and become a cockroach, or that we'll uh, cease being and become manure in uh, Jones' garden. 
That's not how this works. No, sorry, John. <laughs> what I meant, you brought up the garden, so that's why I brought it up. That's not how it works. And so, in the tomb's opening, you knew that death had been destroyed. That death had been destroyed. And here's what else it means. It means the devil's hold on death was broken. How do you know that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. What does it say there? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, as in, since you and I are made of flesh and blood, Jesus himself took on the same thing, as in he was flesh and blood through too. And then look at what it says. And through death, and why did he do it? So that through his dying, he, made, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to its lifelong slavery. That's what happened when these tombs opened. That's what it represents. That's what it represents. Hey, ask yourself this question, eh? Are you scared of death? Don't answer it now, because you'll have to say, nah, I'm not. But ask yourself this question. Are you scared of death? I'm scared of dying painfully, because I've got a very low pain threshold. I mean, I wouldn't survive on the ice when the guys hit each other on hockey. Like, that's painful, man. But here's the thing. Are you afraid of death? And if you are, you need to rework your thinking based on what God is saying. Look at what he's saying here. He's saying that, listen, I became flesh and blood like you, Jacob, so that I could partake of the way you live life. And through my death, I wanted to destroy, I, I destroyed the one who has the power of death. Who is that? That's the devil. To do what? To deliver you who through the fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. Yeah. Ask yourself the question, are you afraid of death? And then the second question should be, why? And embrace a new way of thinking. Matthew 27, 53. Matthew 27, 53. So now we know the tombs open. So we are at Fraser and 41st. And we just see a whole lot of cemeteries suddenly breaking open and you think, oh shucks, I heard a noise and the cement's cracking. And now the tombs have opened and now there's another problem. The tombs were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. As in, these tombs lay open and suddenly people who had been buried for years started popping up. But look when they popped out. They didn't. The tombs are broken open. You can perhaps see them if you looked inside, but they don't come out till Jesus rises. Look at the next verse. I I don't know why we don't see some things. At least I didn't. Verse 52, The tombs were open and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into Jerusalem or the holy city and appeared to many. So the tombs are open and, and on the third day, as soon as Jesus rises, guess what happens? These guys who are in the graves, get up. 
not only do they get up, they actually get up and they don't say, let's stay in the cemetery. No, let's go into the city. And so they come from Fraser and 41st down Main Street into your home. I mean, that's what happened, guys. That is what happened. So first, like we said earlier on, I just love having read this because we said the womb of death is broken and then what happens? Life is given to the stillborn who has been delivered from death. To the stillborn delivered from death. We talked about this last time. This is what has happened and this is what is this is what is symbolically happening here too. Where where the graves open and the ones who are dead stay dead for two days and when Jesus rises, suddenly life comes back. That's what happened to you guys. The moment you receive Christ, that's what happens. The old you that was bound to um, all kinds of addictions, bondages, ways of living sin, suddenly it ceases to exist and God gives you a brand new life which allows you to live the way you're living. And that actually happened. And these guys then went into the city. They actually went into the city. If you look at Isaiah 26.19, Isaiah 26.19, this was already prophesied, man. Isaiah 26.19. Isaiah 26.19. Here's what it says. Isaiah is prophesying about a future time. And he says this. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Wow! It's talking about what happened, man. Let me read it again. Isaiah 26, 19, it says there, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's what happened. And, and, and this, this event that happened that day was also kind of what, it was almost like a prototype of John chapter 5 verse 28. Turn to John 5 28, where Jesus says these words, and that's kind of what's happening. It's a prototype, meaning it'll, it was the first installment, it'll happen again. John 5.28 And here's what it says. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted Jesus the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. God is just giving us a taste of it, that they will hear. Do not marvel, because they will hear my voice and the dead will actually rise to life, some to the resurrection of, uh, some to the judgment of, some who will be judged correctly will have resurrection and some too. Damnation. But um, I just wanted to show you that. And guys, when they rose, they didn't rise as spooky Caspers or something. Like, oh, some of you won't know who Casper is. It was before your time, Jason. Oh, it was your time? Okay. Yeah, so these guys didn't rise as spooky uh, apparitions or something. They rose in recognizable 
bodies, recognizable resurrected bodies is what they rose up in. Because if you look at Matthew 27, 53, it says, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Meaning, they actually met people in Jerusalem. So they had recognizable resurrected bodies and were familiar to those that they appeared to. So Jesus rises up, but he doesn't show himself publicly in Jerusalem. But he did show himself to more than 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after he rose again. But he didn't publicly go into Jerusalem and say, here, I have risen. But even though he didn't go into Jerusalem, the rest of the city woke up that Sunday morning to the fact that some kind of resurrection had happened. Because <laughs> here come, I mean, and, and here's the thing guys, if you read Leviticus 23, uh, it says that the Sunday after that Passover and Sabbath was uh, the Sunday when they go out to cut sheaves of barley. Because it was, um, uh, it, they were supposed to celebrate this Jewish festival called First Fruits. So you can imagine, eh, they get up on Sunday because the Jews kept these festivals um, passionately. So they get up on Sunday because it was the uh, festival of first fruits of the barley harvest. And so they're walking into the fields to harvest their sheaves to offer to God as a first fruit. And they see people coming down the road because the graves would always be outside the city. And they see people coming down the road. And these are guys who some of them recognize. Because these were people who were dead and buried and now they're walking towards them. Imagine that meeting, eh? You can imagine people leaving the city of Jerusalem early that morning to cut sheaves and as they walk towards the barley fields, they see people approaching them, heading towards Jerusalem, ones that had died and had been resurrected. And in a sense, it fulfilled what was written in 1 Corinthians 15.20 where it says that now Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he becomes the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, It must have really messed up the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees were a bunch of teachers who didn't believe in resurrection. And there is Uncle Jim standing at the door. And they must have been scratching their head. But we don't believe in resurrection. But here I am. (laughs) That's the cool thing about the truth. eh? The truth will eventually bear itself out in evidence. And it, it doesn't matter what you believe. I always say, jump out of a 50-story building believing that gravity doesn't exist and see what happens. You look like you want to know what happens. <laughs> Don't try this at home, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the Sadducees were still arguing about the fact that resurrection is not real. And yet they just saw guys coming back. So it must have really messed up their theology because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. In Acts 23, 8, it talks about it. And here's the thing, guys. These guys who were resurrected were resurrected or or raised to everlasting life. They were not raised to die again. So, let's assume that I had died 20 years ago before Jesus died. And then Jesus uh, rises up and I rise up too. And so I turn up at Jason's house and I knock on the door. And Jason can't believe it because I've just come back from the dead. I've been dead for 20 years. He remembers singing at my funeral. And there I am. <laughs> and now he looks at me and I have a resurrected body. I can be recognized. And I am not going to die again. It is a life that is now everlasting life. So what happened to them? 
I'll suggest to you that when Jesus ascended, they ascended too. 40 days they were on earth, man. They were raised to everlasting life. Sounds like a science fiction movie, eh? But it's true, man. Beam me up, Scotty came much later. So these guys who were resurrected were raised to life everlasting. They, can, they probably, and I say probably only because the story ends there. Matthew doesn't continue there. But they probably continued on earth until Jesus' ascension and went with him to heaven. Why? What, what was the purpose of all this? Guys, the purpose is so cool. This was a public display that sin, death, Satan and the grave had been completely defeated. And it was also proof that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 will happen because it's happened once before. And what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4.17? That a day is coming when Jesus will come back and the dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the air. And then those that are still alive will too. Read it, read it, read it. Either this entire book is true or the whole thing is a falsehood. And um, uh, Paul put it this way, man, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we Christians should be pitied because we are the greatest fools alive. 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's what it says. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And uh, here's what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Guys, the crazy thing is, this being caught up with the Lord is a reality that has already happened before. Any questions, comments? Challenges, disagreements. Could you repeat that bit about um, sin and death and Satan? Yeah, in them rising up and then at one point ascending, which I believe is what happened because they were raised to everlasting life, not life that would die again. Because it is appointed to man to die once and then, yeah. So, um, in in that happening, you saw the you saw the end end of death, life. Sorry, death, grave, sin, and the devil. Because if those guys' sins were not paid for, they cannot rise. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. You got to be paid in the currency of death if you sin. So, had had Christ not paid for their sins, they couldn't have risen. Had the devil's power not been destroyed, they couldn't have risen. Why? Because we just read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that Satan had the power of death that he began to exert as a weapon against humans because we sided with him instead of siding with God. Grave. You bury someone, can't come out. The graves broke open. So it was a display of victory over sin, Satan, death and the grave. I mean, this whole idea of, I mean, whenever someone dies, we 
preach from 1 Corinthians 15 and we say, death, where is your sting? And we are always thinking of the future. And this is just to let you know, guys, it's also happened in the past and it's going to happen again in the future too. The other thing is, guys, so what happened to Jesus when he died? I mean, there are all kinds of theories on what happened to Jesus when he died. Um, and one of the pet theories is that Jesus descended into hell. Um, and um, uh, it's really not that way. So here's what happened. Some of us have heard this before, and some of us need to hear it so we don't have others telling us Otherwise, see in Hebrew, there's a word called Sheol, and in Greek, there's a word called word called Hades. Both are just the place of the dead. That's what its basic definition is, the place of the dead. And so, if you read Luke 16, Luke 16, 22 to 26, Luke 16, 22 to 26, Luke 16, 22 to 26. Luke 16, 22-26. So it's a story about Lazarus. So we'll start from verse 22. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, uh, whichever word your Bible uses. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And then verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, chasm that has been fixed in order that you, uh, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. So guys, basically, Hades is was made up of two parts. One was called, uh, one was still called Hades, and the other one was called Abraham's side by the Jews, or another word for it was paradise. And so this was the temporary abode of the unrighteous. And this was the temporary abode of the righteous. And so anyone who died would either would go to Hades and would either go to paradise or to Hades. And so this is why, I mean if you notice, Jesus didn't say to the thief on the right, I'll see you in hell today. He didn't say that, that sounds like a Hollywood movie. No, he said I'll see you in paradise. He didn't say I'll see you in hell. Because whether we like it or not, hell is empty. There's nobody in hell. And we'll talk about that at the end. There's no one in hell. Hell is a place that was only prepared for Satan and his demons. It was not even supposed to be occupied by humans. And at present, there is nobody in hell. So, Jesus said that today you will be with me in paradise. So, the only place Jesus went to was to paradise where he awaited the resurrection of his body 
He did not go to hell. He did not have to wrestle the keys of death and hell from the devil as some of the songs teach or some preachers preach. It sounds really dramatic and with music it can really sound good. But <laughs> but the thing is, it's not biblical. The moment he said it is finished on the cross, it was finished. He didn't now need to go down to the hell to suffer more or to pay a price or to teach the devil or to take the keys from him. It is finished was it is actually finished. Done deal. So Jesus went to paradise. Jesus went to paradise. And so even when you read 1 Peter 3.19, and we won't talk about it today, I'm just referring you to that scripture, and we'll talk about it some other day, because it'll take another hour. Uh, in First uh, Peter 3.19, 3.18 and 19, 1 Peter 3.18 and 19. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison before they formally did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That happened not in hell, but here. But we'll talk about that another day. Uh, what it means, we'll talk about it another day. So here's what happens, guys. This is where Jesus went after he died. And then, when he rose again, and ascended, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.8, that he took captivity captive. As in, now when Christ rose, and ascended, and went to heaven, he took with him, those that were in paradise to heaven. So today, there is no place called paradise. Today, there is only a place called Hades. There is no place called paradise. You don't go to paradise when you die. You go to heaven. Because those in paradise could not be justified till Jesus had died. They were righteous according to the law, but not righteous according to the standards of God's holiness. In Christ's death, they are now made righteous. And so when he ascended, he took captivity captive. It says, he who descended also ascended. Sorry, he who ascended also descended. That's what it says in Ephesians 4.8. And he took captivity captive. He takes them, now that they have been fully made righteous, from paradise to heaven. So today, there is no thing called paradise. You don't go to paradise. You only go to heaven. If you believe who Christ is. Because you've got to believe God to... Go into a place where God lives, right? If you say he doesn't exist, might be a little difficult. Hebrews 11 says that. That you need to first believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. Any questions on that, guys? And so today, one who lives unrighteously, one who decides that God does not exist, one who does not want to recognize who Christ is, uh, still goes to Hades. And Hades is just a temporary abode. It's not a pleasant place. It's a temporary abode. Why? Because in Revelations chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, it actually says that a day is coming when Hades and death will be cast into hell. Hell is the final place of judgment. And that is empty right now. Pardon? At present, nobody... At present, hell is unoccupied. Anyone who dies without uh, rejecting God still 
does not get thrown into hell because still judgment happens. I mean, read Revelations 20, 11 to 15. Revelations 20, 11 to 15. It says there, And then I saw a great white throne to, on, and him who was seated on it. This is John seeing a vision. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no pl- place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's where we hear of hell first. Um, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's a bit about where did Jesus go after he died. And here's the other thing. Here's another theory that I've heard throughout my childhood. Not throughout my childhood. Yeah, actually from when I was a kid, which is so many years ago now. And so here's what happened. Jesus rises from the dead and Mary sees him. In John 20, it says Mary saw him and she goes and grabs Jesus and Jesus says, do not touch me. And out of that has come this new theory that Jesus said, do not touch me because he had not yet risen to the Father. You'll hear this all over the place. Hey, guys who are better than me teach this. As in better than me in every respect. Teach this. And, and so you need to understand that um, I'll tell you where it comes from. The, when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not know, need to go to heaven to place before the Father his sacrifice of blood saying, I have taken care of um, their sins. He didn't need to do that. That comes from a flawed understanding of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. Hebrews 9 12. Hebrews 9 12. In Hebrews 9 12 it says, let's start at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect and not made with hands, that's not of this creation. Okay, verse 12. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what people have done is, they've taken the scripture and they've said that when Jesus rose from the dead, he literally had to go to heaven before the Father and lay before the Father this sacrifice of his blood and say, I have paid for the sins of mankind it's a flawed understanding he didn't do anything of that sort and so people say that when Mary went to touch him and he said do not cling to me or do not touch me what he was saying is do not contaminate me by your touching because I have to first go to the father and offer a sacrifice before I come back guys when you read John chapter 20 verse 17 he says do not touch me but John John 20 verse 27 he actually goes to Thomas and he says touch me touch me touch me so in a matter of seven verses, Jesus moves from do not touch me to touch me. So surely it's got nothing to do with contamination. But we've come up with this theory. The natural explanation would be him saying, listen, don't touch me right now because I got places, don't cling to me right now because I got places to go. And go tell my brothers and sisters that um, I'm going to 
your fa- my father and your father. I mean, Mary would have clung on to him for dear life because she had never thought he'd come back and he's come back. And she was so excited to see him. And so she naturally clung. I mean, I remember this scene, eh? When Marcus was lying out there and he comes back to life. What was the first thing Marcus did? He just looked for Lorian and grabbed her and then just wouldn't let go. I've never seen a grown man cry like a child like I saw that day. Not like a baby, like a child. He was so happy to be back. And the first thing he did was grab her and hold on to her as if he had seen her for the first time. I remember that scene. Some of you were there, you saw that. It's the same thing that's happening here. So Marcus was perhaps not breathing and didn't have a pulse for two and a half minutes. Jesus was not breathing and didn't have a pulse for three days. And he comes out from the grave and what do you think Mary will do? She goes, grabs him and says, Rabboni, it's so good to have you back. And she doesn't want to let go. And in that not letting go, Jesus says, do not cling to me right now. It, It wasn't a theological statement of contamination. It was just... Yeah, I need to go. So it's been taught that Jesus told Mary not to touch him because he had not entered the holy place in heaven to offer his blood and that touching him would have contaminated his blood offering. But surely that can't be because seven verses later or a few hours later, he's telling Thomas, hey, go feel free to put your hand in those nail-scarred holes in my hand. So it can't be that. So Mary held on to Jesus as anyone would when their grief turned to joy, just like Marcus did with Lorian. So here are a few things we can um, take home almost as a rhema word. And what's a rhema word? Um, While the Bible doesn't define it like this, I'm defining it this way. A rhema word is when God, even in times of preaching like this, will release a word that is specific to your situation and will have in it all that you need for what lies ahead. That's what I'm defining it as. It's more a Pentecostal definition than a biblical definition. So, in loosening Mary's grip, Jesus conveyed a few things that perhaps we need to hear today. And for many of us, it'll mean different things, but that's fine. Okay, so the first thing, it's odd eh, that with Mary, she had to let go. With Thomas, he had to let Jesus in. Jesus saying, uh, with Mary, she had, she had to have faith to let go. With Thomas, he needed faith to let Jesus in. Both had different reactions. So here's the first statement. Some of us need to trust God to let go of people, past, and circumstances. Some of us need faith, or some of us need to trust God and let go of people, of past, and of circumstances. Um, over the next few weeks, we've got we've held on to them for too long, and, and it's to our detriment. And so, some of us need to trust God to let go 
of people, of past, and of situations and circumstances. That's statement one. Statement two. And the only one you don't let go of is your spouse. So don't you can't use the statement to do that. In the sense, you can't say, ah, the pastor said I could let go of you, so let's file for divorce. You can't do that. <laughs> Some of us need to... These are very simple statements, but if it at any point, as I'm saying, strikes you or just hooks you for a second, go examine it further at home. Some of us need to trust God to let him in and believe for the impossible again. In the sense you have trusted God, nothing happened, and so you've kind of kept him at a distance because you're scared of being disappointed, and so you've kept him at a distance. Some of us need to trust God to let him in again so that we can start believing for the impossible. It's a trick of the enemy, eh, where you trusted God for something, it didn't happen, and so you keep him at a distance because you don't want to go through that process again where you trusted him with everything you have and you feel let down and you're scared of being disappointed again. You don't want to engage with God. But hey, always know that God is just and fair and perfect. He never lets anybody down. It's not in his character. He does not know how. And therefore, when I'm disappointed with what God has not done, I always go back and say to him, listen, I'm really disappointed and really sucks, but I just want you to know that I know that you're fair and that you're not someone who knows how to let me down and you're my father. And then you start over again and that's something you need to do. Third, even though you want everything to be the same again, that's what Mary wanted. Eh? Mary wanted the physical Jesus to be there forever now. And Jesus is saying, don't hold on to me. I am going to the Father and to your Father. She wanted things to be the same. And he's saying, I am going and I won't leave you as an orphan. I will send the Spirit of God so he, I can be with you forever. But what I'm trying to say is this, guys. Even though you want everything to be the same as before, even though you want everything to be the same as before, no that know that things are going to change know that things are going to change for the better know that things are going to change for the better know that things are going to change for the better and uh, you need to upgrade your relationship with Him, your relationship with God, you need to upgrade your relationship with God to handle those changes. Guys, this is so crucial. It's going to happen to some of us over the next few weeks and months. Handle, uh, handle what? Handle those changes. Thanks. Guys, 
Moses had to do this, eh? Moses had to first change so that he can lead a people out of Egypt. So he sees the burning bush and there's a heart change and Moses says, great, I now have some kind of courage to lead these people out of Egypt. Then Moses brings them to Mount Sinai. He's brought them out of Egypt, but these people are harder to deal with than the Egyptians because they're stiff-necked. So now how do you take them through the desert? So now Moses has to have an upgrade. And what's an upgrade? An upgrade is when you catch a glimpse of God afresh. And so he catches a glimpse of God on Mount Sinai and it changes him. Now he can take them through the desert. I'm saying to you that even though you want everything to be the same as before, know that things are going to change for the better. And you need to upgrade your relationship with God to handle those changes. Otherwise when they happen, you will be, uh, you can be stiff-necked and grumbling. I wish it was the same. That thing will come up. Any questions on that? You understand that one? Yeah, let's put it this way. Let's say God wants me to live the rest of my life in Mongolia, which I have no desire to do. But if he is saying, Jacob, I'm bringing that change into your life, I will have to quickly get a fresh understanding of God as in, don't worry Jacob, I know you hate the cold, but I'll be there for you. I know it's not like Canada, but I'll be there for you. And as I get an upgrade of God and my relationship with him gets better, now my heart will begin to change to accommodate Mongolia. And if I don't do that, I'll complain bitterly, even in summer in Mongolia. This is going to happen to some of you. eh? When I said a rhema word, that's what I meant. That is a word packed with the grace you need for the coming weeks and months. And this upgrade is necessary because otherwise it'll it'll leave you. It's like a it's like a bride who says, ah, don't worry. There's a, when's your marriage? Wednesday. Have you gotten your bridal gown yet? Nah, there's a weekend. That's what I mean. You've got to prep for it. A guy can pull it off, but not a bride. Um, not exactly. It's one thing to surrender to God's will. And sometimes when we think of the word surrender, we think of this resigned, ah, you're God, what choice do I have? Here, I lay my life down. No, this is, I want to be able to see who you are so my heart is prepared for the next phase of this journey. And if I don't see who you are, I'll surrender, but boy, will I be an unwilling surrender. It'll be like, a, 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 a goat placed on the altar that's struggling to leave? Yeah, yeah, that's the word. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says this brilliantly. It says, if you want to eat the good of the land, you have to be obedient and willing. Sometimes Christians are obedient, but they're very unwilling. And you can make out immediately <laughs> when someone is... You can make it out with your children. Huh? Go do this. I don't want to eat this. Eat it, otherwise you won't be able to go out. Okay, I wasn't thinking of you, Tavis. Next one. He promises to be with you. He promises to be with you 24-7. He promises to be with you 24-7 by His Spirit. I'm not making statements that are 
statements of truth so that we understand it. I know you know this. I'm making this statement so that you're prepared for the weeks and months ahead because, like I said, God is just giving us words that will have enough grace in it to help us live it, not survive it, but live it. He promises to be with you 24-7 by His Spirit. So stop walking by sight and feelings, but start walking by faith. Start walking by faith. Stop walking by sight. If you know he's... Guys... Yeah. So stop walking by sight. Start walking by faith. Because he's going to be there 24-7. He will be there. Remember one of the solidest promises he's given is, I will never forsake you or leave you. I will be with you. And I am your helper. So do not be afraid. What can man do to you? So, he promises to be with you by his spirit 24-7. So stop walking by sight. As in, show me proof. Show me proof. Show me that you love me. Tell me that you love me. Give me a promise. Give me a prophecy. No, 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 no. no. All that is taken care of. What I was going to say, because I didn't know how to word it is, I'm going to Vernon to deal with something. And trust me, it's not Eric or any person. I'm going to Vernon to deal with something tomorrow. And part of me was kind of scared. And this morning I woke up and God reminded me that when Joshua came to Jericho, Jericho was shut up because Jericho was scared. That first thought I wake up with this morning. And it was so reassuring because now I don't need assurances of God, you'll be with me, you'll be my helper, you'll be my protector. It's taken care of. Now you can walk by faith, not by sight. Fifth one. Jesus is Jesus has freed you for adoption. Jesus has freed you for adoption. Remember your mom's name was death. Thank God you, you understand how I meant that, right? Yeah. Jesus has freed you for adoption. Your mom's name was death, your dad's name was sin. He's freed you up for adoption and guess who's adopted you? His father. His father's adopted you. Guys, if his father is your father and my father now, then understand this, that you have the same access. You have the same access. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Beautiful verse. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, no one knows the father except the son. But it's changed. Because I am the same kind of son now. I have access to the Father. And for those of, for some of us, all we need to do over the next little while is enter deliberately every morning into the same affection, same intimacy, and same trust that Jesus has with the Father. And the crazy thing is, You can do it because you have the same ability and access.
you can do it because you have the same ability and ah, that, that doesn't and access. Seek this out every morning. Father, I want to be as affectionate with you as Jesus was when he walked the earth and right now. I want to have the same intimacy with you. I want to trust you like he did. Every day you can increase in it. Next Sunday when you come to worship on tomorrow morning when you're worshiping God or singing to him in your room or <laughs> there you start again. You begin, to ex- you, you begin to connect with him affectionately as in, as in not with many words but your heart ties up with his man. To enter into the same kind of intimacy with the father. Why do you think Jesus would call him Abba? Partly because that was what they did in Aramaic. But partly because he knew God as his own dad, man. And then there was a thing of trusting him as Jesus trusts the Father. That will be brilliant, eh? When we trust him like Jesus trusted his Father. And the last one, since some of you are looking at the clock and don't think I didn't notice. And if you're feeling guilty, just put your head down and I won't look at you right now. And you know who you are. Should I look at you? No, I won't. Okay. I'll finish before 12.30. Leanne, in case they didn't warn you, some days it goes kind of 12.30, but most other days it's 12.12. Yeah. Yeah. Did she? I heard a comment from the peanut gallery. <laughs> See, you guys are delaying my time, eh? I got to finish. Okay. Yeah, guys. The last one is uh, Jesus, who knows the Father, is willing to make the Father known to you if you learn from Him. Jesus, who knows the Father. Jesus, who knows the Father, is willing. To make the Father known to you. You guys didn't know Eddie, right? Before? Not before he came. Not before he came, but I did. And so I knew Eddie and I made Eddie known to you. And it did affect your life. Same principle, guys. Jesus knows the Father. I I must have a desire to know the Father more. Where I'm at is not good enough. Where I'm at is not good enough. The more you know somebody, the easier it is to trust Him. The more you know, know somebody and you find out that He's really good, the easier it is to like Him. And the more you like somebody, the more easy it is to do whatever you want for Him. We don't even ask things like this, eh? Where we say, Father, I want to know you more. There was this old song which we won't sing, but it says, <laughs> it says, uh, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. And occasionally in your prayer, say to Jesus, you know the Father like nobody else does. So by your spirit, show me more. Let me see more of what the Father is like because I know it will change my life. How does he do it? He does it through, Jesus teaches you how? Through the word, through the spirit, and through people, guys, and through people. And through people. 
You knew Eddie because a people called Jacob introduced Eddie to you. Same thing. We learn through people, we learn through his spirit, and we learn through the word. And Jesus is so willing to introduce his father. Jesus is passionate about this. eh? This, like I always say, the Holy Spirit points toward Jesus and says, Hey Jacob, you want to know the father? Look at Jesus. And then Jesus is standing in the center. And Jesus says, Hey Jacob, you want to know the father? Look at me. And you will see the father. And then the father is standing on the right side. And he says, Hey Jacob, you want to look at, you want to know me more? Look at Jesus. And they work in such perfect harmony, pointing to each other. Pointing to each other. So the Father says, look at Jesus and you'll know me. Jesus says, you want to look at the Father, look at me, and the Holy Spirit will teach me. And it goes on so well. Make these things desires of yours. eh? This week, ask God. And take home some of the stuff that has been said. And if it has uh, kind of gone click in your heart when some of these things were spoken, or if the word spoken in prophetically over you this morning... Um, did something to you, go write it down and then if you have any questions, feel free to ask me. Otherwise, we are done. So let's just pray. Father, thank you. Crazy what you did that day on uh, resurrection. What happened there? That was just amazing. Where the graves actually broke open and dead people came out and they then ascended with you. That's going to happen to us too, right? That was just like a taste of what's going to happen. So thank you for life. Thank you for life. I've got to know how to live it here on earth, Father. And some of these words that have been spoken, uh, let it click and let it help. And let's explore it more. Father, got to go. This 1230 thing is bothersome here, but that's how it works here. So we bless you. We thank you. And uh, yeah, that's it. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>